Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, hey, it's good to be back. We were on a brief hiatus, but we had a good reason for it. We did. We had a baby. Yes. I mean, I had a baby. No, we um, had we a baby. We had a baby. I was in the room. I had to sit on the uncomfortable couch. Oh. It was a whole thing. Poor you. <laughs> wow. What? You really endured a lot. I did. I am just so thankful. And I didn't complain at all. You didn't. Not once. I mean, you slept a lot for as uncomfortable as that couch was. <laughs> you did a lot of sleeping. Well, maybe you shouldn't have gone into labor in the middle of the night. I was I tired. I really apologize. I'm so sorry. I remember like having like contractions looking over and you're like, <sighs> I was like, yes. <laughs> I was fading. Thank I was you. Fading. It's okay. He'll, he'll be awake when things get lively. And I was. And you were, yeah. Exactly. And, and here we are. We have our third son. Elias Austin Chamberlain. Uh, he is currently sleeping as well as hopefully, maybe not, but hopefully the other two boys are sleeping as well. But it's fine. The doors are closed. Yeah. Whatever happens. Baby happens. gate is up. So don't worry. They're not going to run out of the house. They might run through the house. But yes, we are back and we are excited to be back. And um, hopefully, hopefully you actually missed us. Like hopefully you enjoy listening to this podcast every week and Maybe you were a little sad we were gone, but don't worry. We are back, and hopefully we will stay back. We'll see about that. Right. Well, but while we were gone, there was the world kept turning, apparently. It does that, apparently. When it does you, not even, revolve around us. Yeah, Absolutely not. As much as I wish it, it did. Uh, but there's some news that came down a couple of weeks ago, some really sad news, actually, that uh, Timothy Keller died at the age of 72 after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. And for those of you who don't know much about Tim Keller, he has been just this highly influential figure in evangelicalism uh, for the better part of like three decades. He's a pastor. He's an author. He's an apologist. He planted a church in New York City uh, back in the late 80s in 1989, really despite the fact that a number of people in his denomination had advised him against it because they're like, who wants to go to New York City? This is like post-Christian secular culture. Uh, you're not going to grow a church there. I don't even think he wanted to go. Uh, not at first, I, no. I saw like an interview with him, and <laughs> that was not his first choice of where he wanted to plant a church at. Right, yeah. And he was like, mm, yeah. But then he, he just felt called to go there. And the church that he planted, Redeemer Presbyterian, it grew into a megachurch under his leadership. And it became multi-site. And eventually, once he kind of stepped down from the lead role, they spun those off into independent churches. And so now there's five independent churches in New York City that are all pretty substantial in, in size and influence. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine he saw quite a bit of growth prior to 9-11. But 9-11, um, it's so interesting the way that God had positioned him and his church that was already established at that time. Uh, where people were searching. They were hopeless. Uh, they were just in desperate need of answers and of hope. And uh, wouldn't you know it, there was already a church ready to talk about what was happening within the community. And he s- saw a massive growth after 9-11. Um, I think that's when maybe the rest of the world became like aware of Tim Keller uh, he was already doing a whole lot prior to 9-11, but 
that kind of springboarded him into the rest of like popular yeah i think that was a pivotal moment also in 2008 his his book the reason for god uh that really like the rest of everybody learned who he was at that point um yeah so he was one of the founding uh council members of the gospel coalition he founded a church planting network he's authored numerous books i mean I'm, i'm looking at one on my shelf right here called center church about uh church planting and church leading it's like this huge like textbook and then even just a few weeks ago i reread uh a book on self-forgetfulness it's like a little 60 page thing Mm, and so like and he had the reason for god where he's kind of talking to skeptics about you know how you can believe in god and so he was just like he did a lot of things he said a lot of things he wrote a lot of things that were like super influential um and you know it's been said that you know even now that he's passed for decades perhaps even centuries to come like People are going to be reading his stuff and discussing it, you know, much like a C.S. Lewis or a John Stott or a J.I. Packer. He's re- he's that influential and that kind of a pivotal character in the evangelical landscape. And so, as you might expect, with all of that, uh, when uh, news of Keller's death came down, just the Internet was flooded with all of these tributes to him. Uh, but in somewhat poor form, there were also a lot of people who took the news of his death to kind of... Uh, rehash some of the disagreements that they have with Keller and his philosophy and his way of doing uh, evangelism and ministry um, because he engaged the culture in a very specific way. And the, the key word around that is winsomeness. He had a very winsome approach to um, leadership, to cultural engagement, to apologetics, to evangelism, even to to pastoring. He wanted to have this very winsome approach, a very nonpartisan approach, an approach where he would take everybody's ideas seriously and examine them and critique them, but to do so in a way that was very kind of disarming and, and things like that. Um, and this has been going on for a couple of years, but this conversation around uh, the legacy of Tim Keller's winsomeness and his approach to that. And there are some people who say, yeah, that we that's still an approach that we need to have. But there are others who are saying, you know, the culture's changed. Uh, things aren't the way they used to be in America. And maybe it's time to set winsomeness aside. And so it's kind of like Tim Keller passing on is symboling the end of an era for them. And so that's kind of the conversation that's happening. Uh, so we would love to take this episode to talk about Tim Keller's life and his ministry, but also to kind of look at these questions of cultural engagement uh, that he long you know, wrestled with and lived out uh, through his very successful uh, ministry life um, and just kind of discuss Tim Keller and the legacy of winsomeness, really. Um, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. 
Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. So, Tim Keller is no longer with us, but his ideas about apologetics, about cultural engagement, about church planting, uh, about theology, they still loom very large and are going to continue to loom large in the evangelical movement, at at least for the moment, it seems like. Uh, But in recent times, uh, some of his ideas have really been called into question by evangelicals and particularly evangelicals who identify more with kind of a culture war mentality and kind of think of America as it's moving into kind of a post-Christian culture that they have this idea that we can't win by being nice or staying nonpartisan. We're going to need a a bit of a different tactic. So in other words, we have to be more vocally opposed to, say, like the political left uh, and actually kind of like start to like demonize them in some ways rather than to take their ideas seriously. Um, because they're, you know, quote unquote, doing the work of Satan, uh, and so we need to expose that and take the culture back. And you can't do that by being gentle and winsome and all these things. And so this conversation is kind of closely related to other conversations about, say, like Christian nationalism, uh, which really also stands in stark contrast to Tim Keller's whole nonpartisan, nuance, winsome approach to cultural engagement. Um, and so this conversation it, it's been swirling for the past couple of years. Uh, but it really came to a head last year and kind of there was a flash in the pan last year with regard to this conversation when uh, a theologian named James R. Wood, he published an article titled How I Evolved on Tim Keller. And so I think it would be helpful to look at the key aspects of Wood's argument as it relates to Keller's philosophy on cultural engagement. So in that article, Wood basically argued that, you know, the days of winsomeness are over. It it worked for Keller before American culture became kind of radically secular, um, but it isn't feasible anymore. And so uh, Wood, he kind of used this terminology of neutral world versus negative world. And Wood argued that uh, Keller, he did his pastoring and his evangelizing and his cultural engagement in a culture that was a neutral world, meaning that you know, the surrounding culture in America, it didn't necessarily feel positively about Christianity, but it wasn't, you know, necessarily hostile either. It was neutral. And so you could wade into the conversation winsomely and with nuance and, you know, casually in a way that maybe you can't anymore. Because what he goes on to argue that we have now moved into a negative world in which the surrounding culture in America doesn't feel neutrally about uh, Christianity uh, and and kind of, you know, it is what it is kind of mentality that it actually actively dislikes or is hostile towards uh, the Christian faith uh, and kind of wishes that it was gone. And so in staying kind of nonpartisan and staying uh, winsome and kind of trying to wade in in a non-combative way, Wood is kind of arguing that really we have to appease those on the political left who are never going to accept us uh, to the detriment of those on the right who many of them already follow Jesus. And so he says that this kind of crystallized for him around the uh, 2016 election. And really, <laughs> the 2016 year 
2016 and 2020, I think when I'm old and gray, I'm going to remember those years as pivotal years for just everybody was crystallizing all kinds of thoughts in their minds. Uh, but he uh, said that this really kind of crystallized for him around that time in the 2016 election. And so he says this, quote, public witness uh, most often translates into appeasing those on one's left and distancing oneself from the, quote, de- deplorables. I didn't like what it was doing to my heart, and I felt that it was clouding my political judgment. He goes on to add, And I started to recognize another danger to this approach. If we assume that winsomeness will gain a favorable hearing, when Christians consistently receive heated pushback, we will be tempted to think that our convictions are the problem. And so he later says, Keller's, quote, third-way philosophy, and that was another way to talk about uh, his approach of kind of being nonpartisan, of being nuanced, of being winsome. Keller's third-way philosophy has serious limitations as a framework for moral reasoning as well. It can also produce uh, conflict aversion, and thus it is instinctively accommodating. By always giving equal airtime to the flaws of every option— the third way posture can also give the impression that the options are equally bad, failing to sufficiently recognize ethical asymmetry. So Wood, he goes on to conclude, he says this, Keller was the right man for a moment. To many, like me, it appears that that moment has passed, end quote. A couple weeks later in a follow-up post, Wood clarified that he wasn't trying to personally criticize Keller, who he still kind of considered a personal hero. Uh, and who was also dying of cancer at the time. Uh, But he was just saying, you know, I'm not criticizing Keller personally. I'm just uh, criticizing his entire vision for life and ministry, and I think it's no longer viable. Uh, (laughs) After uh, Keller passed away, though, Wood, he did um, write another piece that said, this article is about Tim Keller, and he celebrated all of Keller's uh, accomplishments and all that. There are others who have expressed similar ideas in various ways and in various forms and with various levels of charity and nuance, um, but have really kind of talked about um, this idea that you know, you know, Keller he he uh, he punches right and uh, engages left is the the accusation for Keller and a lot of those who kind of have his philosophy of nuance and winsomeness that really um, we shouldn't take seriously the the ideas of the secular world and engage them on that level because they're trying to attack us and brutalize us. Uh, and so we need to fight fire with fire in some regard. And this whole like everybody's neutral and we can just come to this table and discuss the ideas uh, involved with the Christian faith like that's that's not viable anymore. And so that that's kind of like the argument that's being put out there uh, contra Keller, who is kind of the face of this philosophy. But there are a lot of other evangelical leaders who fall under this kind of category of cultural engagement, uh, whether it's individuals, whether it's publications, just uh, the one that comes to mind that's also often maligned uh, is like Christianity Today kind of would fall under this umbrella of this philosophy of you know nuance, winsomeness, of engaging the culture in a way that kind of elicits curiosity, uh, those kinds of things. And some people are saying, like, those days are gone. That's not working anymore. That's just going to push you far left, and you're going to have to give up the farm, and it's not going to matter anyway because nobody is going to listen to you because you're a Christian and they hate you. So that's kind of the argument. What, what, do you th- what are your reactions as you kind of see that kind of unfolding? I think what's interesting is uh, in Wood's article, the 
foundation of his argument is that what Keller did and the philosophy he built his ministry around um, and the way that he shared the gospel, the way that he was teaching and discipling others to share the gospel as well as evangelizing um, was from this starting point of a neutral culture. But if you actually look at Keller's church plant in New York, New York was not a neutral culture for Keller. It was very much a uh, anti-Christian. I wouldn't know if hostile is necessarily the word, but it was definitely not well received. Um, I think there's even interviews of Keller saying like people didn't want him to plant there who lived in New York because they didn't want another church. They didn't trust the church. They didn't want to be part of it. So in many ways, they were not neutral. They were very much against Christianity. So um, Wood's argument revolves around this idea that we it worked because it was in a neutral culture and now we're no longer there. We're in a negative culture. But that's just a false foundation because Keller was not working from a neutral culture. And what he was working from was a negative culture and it his philosophy drew people in, right? So I think that was my first thought of uh, Wood's article is whether or not that's actually an accurate assessment of what was happening within the culture. I think another thing that Keller's receiving a whole lot of criticism around his philosophy um, is it then is shaped from a very American viewpoint because uh, when we start talking about politics and shifting our culture through the lens of politics, that is not a shared worldview because there's a lot of other Christians in a lot of other countries where there is no way they are going to make any kind of forward movement within their culture through the uh, political avenue, right? That's very uniquely American. Um, and so if we're talking about American Christian philosophies, then sure, maybe we can say there's a bit of change. Maybe we can talk about it from that lens. But I know Keller in what he was teaching and what he was trying to grow was more than just within the American culture. Um, You see the influence of Keller worldwide for Christians all around the world, leaders, pastors. Um, So that's, that's also just an interesting I wouldn't even say it's a side thought. I think it's it's actually a pretty uh, centered thought is Wood is looking at it from strictly this American Christian lens and also the political landscape that has only recently changed within American culture at large. Yeah. I think you bring up a lot of things that um, maybe I can't remember when this was. We'll we'll post this uh, interview in the show notes, but Keller actually responded to not directly to Wood, but you know, Wood was basically who he was responding to. Uh, but this conversation, he went on an interview uh, with Premier Unbelievable is the the name of the the it's a YouTube channel. Um, we'll link to this and and in the interview that the guy was asking Keller like oh so you've been on the internet talked about a lot lately like how do you want to uh respond to you know basically people saying like your time is done in terms of, like in terms of like the the age of winsomeness is over and Keller he said a lot of the things that that you were just reflecting on uh he said yeah like while it's true in american culture 
uh, like as a whole, it has become more post-Christian. In New York in 1989, like it was already there. It like was when a, you look yeah. when you look in the Midwest in 1989, it was like a uh, it was either positive or neutral culture if you look in nashville it's either positive or neutral if you look in houston texas if you look in uh, boise idaho like it was very much you know positive or neutral but if you look at new york city la uh, uh seattle like all of those places even in 1989 were were negative world in terms of their orientation towards christianity Right. And his approach of the only way to change culture is through um, fighting fire with fire from a political avenue. I just struggle with that approach to the Christian witness in general. Um, I think I can understand to some degree that maybe if we only view our faith through this winsome avenue, then we might be fearful of offending a little bit because all we're trying to do is understand um, to the degree of then we don't want to offend in any way. I had read somebody else, uh, I think you'd sent me the article, who had said one of the reasons it's apparent that Keller was a heretic is we're the, not going to link to that one in the show notes by the way we've linked the, we're going to link a lot of stuff in the show notes no, it, i'm just going to let you google that one that one's particularly bad but hold on uh the reason he said he's a heretic is because people didn't hate him the secular people didn't hate keller they actually like said a lot of good things about him when he died and that i mean that argument <laughs> Is is real flimsy in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, because but, the the one of the qualifications of an overseer is that you have to be well respected by outsiders. Well, according to him, that was the issue. So, I it's foolish. He it was is. a nice guy, therefore he must have been a heretic. Yeah, why didn't why didn't <laughs> why did non Christians not hate him? Um, you made me lose my whole train of thought. What was I talking? Why was I talking about that? Oh, that he was a heretic because oh, people didn't hate him. Right. But the idea then that that author is talking about is uh, Keller didn't push hard enough for his Christian views. In some ways, that's kind of what he was saying. Um, I, I think that's false, but I can understand the train of thought of if we are discipling people to only be winsome um, and only engage in the nuances and only talk about like, well, you tell me your side and I'll tell you mine and I'll tell you my viewpoint. Then we might have the tendency of not actually sharing truth, which if you read any of Keller's book, hear any of his preaching, he absolutely did not do that. But are there other people who maybe followed him who might lean a little bit more towards um I'm not going to engage in confrontation with you. I'm only going to be um, winsome with you. So I, I think that's probably the only piece of Wood's argument that I can kind of understand and see. But I think a lot of that conclusion is not out of what Keller preached. It might be out of people not executing um, Keller's philosophy to the degree in which he himself was executing it. Like, it just might be some of the followers of Keller's shortcomings, right? Yeah, I mean, in everything that I've uh, heard from him, seen him speak, uh, read from his words, he's he's never been shy. In, no. He's been circumspect sometimes, but never, like, 
bowing down or accommodating to anything. But there's there's an accusation of that that, that for some of the conclusions he reached on on certain issues. Yeah, I don't. I just don't think it's a fair assessment of Keller. Um, if you ever look at people who are following other leaders in in any case, uh, they don't fully. Um, they don't fully execute the philosophy of that leader to a T, right? Like we are followers of Jesus and how well are we executing what he had told us to do? And certainly uh, you're going to see that with any leader and their followers. And so if the issue is he's leading people in a way that they're not carrying out his full philosophy, then I don't think we should charge that against him, right? Uh, and if if you even look at the way that Jesus engaged culture, like he wasn't fighting fire with fire, right? It's just well, he was fighting fire with a different kind of fire. Yeah, but with it wasn't a, through a it, political. It, it wasn't a hate fire. It wasn't a hate fire. It was a Holy Spirit fire. And it wasn't um, an us versus them, which is very much the way that unfortunately uh, a sect of our Christian culture is turning is. It's us against the world. And Jesus actually said, I came to save the world, not to uh, fight against the world. Certainly there is a a distinction between Christians and the way that they should view the world, the way they should interact in the world, the way that they should hold their morals and ethics. Um, Because to be holy in and of itself means to be set apart. Like that's what he did with Israel. That's what he's doing with his people. But to be set apart is not to um, hate the people that are existing within the world. Right. So you can hold those two things in one brain so and the, in one heart. So the reality is it is nuanced. Mm. Like Jesus himself lived in in the nuance. Um, he never compromised on truth, but he wasn't always coming in picking a fight with the people who didn't believe. I mean, he was often picking a fight with the, the religious leaders, um, but he was never coming in. I mean, you see all of the people who were not the religious leaders that he had encounters with, Right, like the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Um, I, I don't know why I was like just the really sinners, had yeah. a long yeah. list, yeah. and then all of a sudden it ended at two. I mean, but those are the ones that are most of the, is the the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and then sinners. Yes, just the rest. So yeah, all the other people um, that were not religious leaders. Like he came to them with truth, but he also came to them with love, and he wasn't condemning them. Right? I mean, he wasn't coming with this iron fist or this like fiery speech to them. Certainly he didn't back down. The people you hear him talking like <laughs> the most fiery to were the Pharisees and Sadducees um, or they're just the religious people. So when you see the way that Jesus himself engaged culture, specifically culture of non-believers, of people who did not know of the the law and Yahweh and all of that, he he was nuanced with them. Yeah, he and was I think kind he, with them. The he woman took at them the well, seriously. The Samar- yeah, yeah, he like, took them seriously. He took their ideas seriously, and right. then like deconstructed them with. Him. And he had conversations with them. Mm-hmm. He he heard their side of things. Um. Yeah, I just don't understand how 
Wood and a few other people can come. Not a few. There's actually quite a people, quite a bit of people that are against. Wood is among the most reasonable of them, but they're yeah. We don't want to name the more fringy ones. The people who are foolish. Yeah, and they just are harsh. I think for the sake of being harsh. I think anytime I hear somebody hurl the word heretic against another Christian. <laughs> like you already lost me. It's like, man, like, especially I was just reading James and it was talking about like being kind to fellow Christians and not just becoming enemies with them. And I think we're, we're enemies with fellow Christians way too often. And we like to use the word heretic way too much, but that's not what this podcast is about. Uh, just back to Keller's um, philosophy and engagement of ministry. I think it it probably still very much has a place. I think it also uh, fits a worldwide Christian view rather than simply an American Christian view. And we often see a lot of parallels between what Keller was doing and what Jesus was doing in his own ministry. Uh, so I think a lot of Wood's accusations are unfair. Um, And I also think they come from a false starting point of, again, suggesting that Keller was living in some kind of a neutral culture when that was not what he was living in. That's why he didn't want to go to New York. Right. Like that was the very reason was like, who wants to plant a church in New York? Like they don't they don't want it here. (laughs) The people of New York don't want a church. Uh, they're very much against the church and for Keller to go up against all of that opposition and to see such growth and to see so many people um, coming to his services and coming to hear him preach, um, I think is actually telling of the opposite of what Wood is arguing. Right. Yeah. And so Wood, he kind of comes from a very much of a political vision uh, that clashes with uh, Keller's philosophy of doing things. And so I want to dive into that aspect a little bit, but we'll do that in just a moment. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So when Keller was talking to Premier Unbelievable, uh, just going back to that interview, when he's talking about, like, you know, this criticism of winsomeness, Keller, he kind of identified uh, that the issue really was you know, 
political in a lot of ways. And he he recognized, he says, listen, like there's an increasingly radical left, there's an increasingly radical right. And he admitted, like, I don't really know the way forward. Uh, but he he said that, you know, a lot of the folks that are coming against his style of doing things uh, are really wanting Christians to take over governmental structures to make them more overtly Christian to hopefully kind of win the culture back in a lot of ways. And that's where kind of like the Christian nationalism conversation comes in. Uh, but Keller, he said, basically, you can't be winsome there. You basically have to get political and align behind a particular political agenda. But then Keller said, but I think that there's room for differences of opinion amongst Christians who are united in the gospel. And that's always been his tag. And to a certain extent, that's always been the thing that he's been criticized for. I think back to, okay, so more recently, say, um, beginning in 2016 and really in 2020, uh, where Keller has had like really engaged conversations around the ideas of uh, racial justice, where people have been said, you know, Keller's gone woke uh, because he's willing to engage those ideas because, you know, the ideas of, of equity and racial justice, like those are left ideas. And so he's trying to accommodate the left so that he can write a column in the Atlantic and get notoriety with them. Uh, and he's just going to, you know, give away the farm on that. So like, that's the more recent one. I think um, before then, if you even talk about like the issue of abortion pre uh, uh, Dobbs decision before Roe v. Wade was overturned, and you would hear Keller kind of talk about like, yeah, it, you know, uh, he's pro-life, but he was talking about like, well, what are the, the legislative things we could do uh, even if, you know, abortion isn't criminalized or banned in some way? What are the things that we can do that would get the abortion number down to as close to as zero as possible? And um, a lot of those things are kind of social programs, welfare programs. Uh, affordable housing, you know, a lot of those type, the, the, a lot of those types of policies and strategies, and so that was again people like saying like, oh, he's he's going leftward because he's not saying that um, anyone who has an abortion should be charged with murder. He's kind of actively not saying that, and instead he's advocating for these quote far left uh, policies, which is you know contradictory to uh, you know him being a conservative like it was like he's far left like tim keller was not far left like he was a presbyterian he was a complementarian <laughs> he was a biblical inerrant inerrantist he um yeah he was just about as conservative as as he you could get i mean like just look up a picture of tim keller like he just looks like a conservative christian just by just by like looking at him and like you know he was just you know yeah, he was just very, very conservative. And so um, to say that he was far left because of these political things that, you know, uh, weren't political to him, they weren't, he wasn't starting from a political agenda. He was reading the Bible and interpreting it the best that he knew uh, he knew how and then, a, you know, kind of exegeting that out into the culture and where that um, had him arrive on certain situations was something that, you know, people would say, oh, that's that's far left or that's you know, progressive or whatever it might be. And I know we've talked at length uh, on, on this podcast and just in our life uh, about the fact that there are parts of, you know, the Republican platform that Christians should support. And there are parts of that platform that, you know, legitimately we should actually oppose. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to vote for somebody. And uh, Keller, he, it seemed like in 
in all the years that I would listen to him and all those kinds of things, he would never um, lionize or demonize Republican or Democrat. There's certain issues or stances he would take on issues that would seem to critique one side or the other, but he would seem to do you know float between critiquing one side and the other pretty easily um, because he wasn't really bought in to, to either side. Um, but you know, from a practical perspective, like we have to like, well, I guess you don't have to. We have the privilege of going to the voting booth or uh, you know electing certain candidates. How how do we like prioritize some of these things? Like, I know that like we, like, I agree with with Keller's philosophy that we we can't you know go wholesale all in on one political party because they're all worthy of critique from a biblical perspective. But like, how do we prioritize some of those things? How do we prioritize our politics? Yeah, or even just like you know what we speak to, like um, mm. the things that that uh, we gr- give priority to that end up maybe taking they start personal, but then they take a political you know form later on. Because being pro life to me is a theological stance. Being pro justice is a theological stance, but then it practically plays out in certain ways. Right. And when you talk about speaking, like, what do we speak on? I think there's a difference between what should be um, spoken about from the pulpit and what should be discussed within, like, Christian communities um, to have no conversations around things that cross over into the political sphere, um, I think, is is becoming willfully ignorant to the world and, and what's happening in around us. Because the idea of politics is not just politics for the sake of it. Oftentimes it does feel that way. But uh, at some point, those um, political agendas and the political stances trickle down to everyday life, right? Like even as we talk about what does it mean to be pro-life, um, is it simply banning abortion? And now, great, we we dealt with that problem. We don't have to talk about this anymore. Or are we actually looking at the individual lives and saying, like, what is um, what is hindering women from feeling like they can actually like go full term with their baby? And uh, back to what you talked about with Keller is uh, oftentimes you see abortion rates are higher within poorer communities. So, like, how do we actually deal with the root of the issue and maybe try and help the situation there rather than just banning it because absolutely um, abortion is murder. That is truth. But how do we backstep from there and say, why are people making these choices? Why do they feel backed into the corner to make these choices? And how do we solve it from there? So uh, politics affects our daily life, right? It's not just um, philosophy and bills written and and things passed that don't actually make a difference in our communities um, or else we wouldn't really need politics at all. So I think when it comes to the discussion of these things, we should be having them within our communities. I don't think every pastor needs to be taking a, um, a stance on every single thing that's happening within the political arena, especially when it comes to endorsing a certain person. I think that is where we see a lot of issues because usually when you're endorsing a person, you're then endorsing a party and everything that comes with it versus here is the talk on um, 
racial justice and here's the stance on um, abortion and here's the stance on, I don't know, legalizing marijuana. Like, I, like maybe we don't need to talk about every single little thing that's happening within the political sphere, but we should be taking um, or having conversations around what is actually going to be impacting our communities, what's going to be impacting our churches, what's going to be impacting the people that are showing up to our churches and the people who are intentionally not showing up because we've talked about something in a certain way. Um, I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, it does. And I felt like it did, but maybe it didn't. <laughs> so tell me if it didn't. I think one of the things that I appreciate about Keller's ministry is that I never heard him speak about like a candidate or even like a particular like policy. Like you should advocate for this policy. What I more always saw him do was like take a step back and then just like help everybody think through how the conversation was going down. Like he would be like, the, some people are saying this. Some people are saying that. Here's the truth of what people are saying over here. Here's some truth of what people are saying over there. Here's what I think is maybe flawed over here. Here's what I think is maybe flawed over there. But he would never be like, therefore, you should vote this or you should advocate this. He was more like, how, how do we like think through these things? I mean, that was the whole winsome thing, right? Where he's like, hey, let's just kind of like talk this thing out. Um, I think um, that is something that uh, of his approach that I would hope that I would incorporate into my own uh, kind of way of engaging with cultural issues of just um, taking all the uh, taking all the ideas seriously, not demonizing the other side and knowing that there's truth and beauty and there's also, you know, downfalls on each side of the equation there. Well, not to tip our hand, but we probably already have, um, as we talked about Keller. Uh, I think that's a lot. <laughs> we of, liked him. We, like, liked we like him. him. We, we're going to miss him. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a lot of what we want to do on Kindness Project in general is to have conversations about um, some of the difficult things that are happening around us. Um, a lot of them ending up being like very theological issues at, at the root of them, right? Uh, but to not just come on here and say, like, here's our opinion and here's what we want to say and here's what we think is um, the best way to understand it from a biblical perspective, but to hold in tension both sides of every conversation, of every argument, I guess you can call them arguments, but to hold in tension the multiple viewpoints and to showcase them and address them and, and to talk about their strengths, to talk about their weaknesses, but also to pull it back to scripture and say, like, Sure, maybe this has some strength in it, but there's nothing about that that's rooted in scripture versus here's this side um, or here's a little bit of both sides. And that's the heart of Kynos Project in general, right? So I think, uh, again, I guess obviously we're very much in favor of Keller's approach because it's a whole lot of what we're trying to do on Kynos Project in general. Yeah, and I didn't realize that kind of until this moment of like, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, I guess I was influenced by the way he did things. Uh, more than I realized. And I think even more than him, like bringing it back to scripture was his real desire to bring it back to the good news of Jesus. Like what is like the redemptive story in all this? What is the kingdom value of Jesus and the renewal and the redemption and the goodness that he wants to bring? And so like, that's why he was part of like so many organizations, founding organizations that were centered on like this, the, the message of, you know, the gospel and uh, taking, 
uh, other Christians in different traditions, taking their traditions seriously, even if you don't agree with them, and knowing that the main thing is the good news of Jesus, um, and and being willing to engage with things, uh, whether they're theological issues, whether they're social issues, whether they're political issues, uh, but to do so in a way that is charitable. And um, yeah, I think I think that's the thing is you, you, taking other people seriously. Well, because the good news of Jesus is meant to impact and transform lives. And if you don't actually care about the life that you're talking to, if you don't actually care about the life that you're sharing the good news of Christ with, then what is the good news? It's not. Right. It's just an idea. It's just an argument at the end of the day that you're trying to like hurl over somebody. The root of the good news is that it is meant for people. And we have to actually care about the person that we're sharing the good news with. It's not just another like win in the Christian world, right? Like win for the Christian team is I've shared this good news with you. I have no idea who you are. I have no idea what your thoughts are. I have no idea where you stand. I have no idea where your starting point is. None of that matters. I shared the good news with you. Yay, team Jesus. Like we have to actually care about the person we're sharing the good news with. And to care about them means to get to know them and and to hear them, to make sure that you know what is their starting point on on whatever it is that you're talking with them about. Um, what are their friction points? Like what is their worldview? Where what is their background? Like what where are they coming from? Um, because the good news wants to step into all of those things. It doesn't just want to be like some banner that you carry that is uh, separated from who you are. The good news of Christ is that Christ is supposed to dwell within you and is supposed to transform and change every aspect of who you are. And in order for that to happen, um, you have to actually know where someone's at. Right. Like the Holy Spirit's going to do all that work. Like it's not your job to do the work. But as ambassadors for Christ, as the ones who are are bearing the name of Christ and, and sharing and coming forth with the good news of Christ, we actually have to be people that care about people. And sometimes caring about people just means listening to them, even if you completely disagree with them. Like you might be like, wow, you're pretty bonkers like that. You <laughs> you have not you thought. You got to a strange place. You have not thought through that at all. <laughs> but that's okay. Like let's let's engage and let's talk. Um, again, it doesn't mean compromising. And it in the reality is like the good news of Jesus in is offensive, right? Because there's an aspect of it that says like Christ is the only way and Christ is the truth and for the world that's offensive because everyone wants to like well your truth is your truth mine is mine like let's let's have fun like let's be friends it's like well truth is truth like it's not exactly like whatever you want it to be there's actually truth that exists uh, so in that way it's offensive but in the way that we share that good news doesn't have to be offensive like we don't need to walk up and call you bad names and say you're going to hell. Like we can actually just talk to you and sure, the reality of um, the good news being offensive is because 
of an aspect of the good news, right? Not because we are showing up trying to be offensive. Right. Yeah. There's, like we're not trying to fight you with fire. Like the, I don't understand that whole like let's fight fire with fire. Um, like why are we fighting? Right. And what is the win? Right. Th- that the conversation of like this is how we win. Like what are we winning? The the culture, the country. We're the taking people? the country back. But no, what about the people? Just the just the just soil. The, yeah. Like what are we winning? What just the the courthouses and well, the schools yeah. are ours now. Like now the statues are ours again. Like I don't. I don't understand what the win is at that point. If the win is not people being completely transformed by the good news of Jesus, then what is the win? Is the win just a bunch of rules that we're putting in place? Like, great, we won that rule. Like, great, we run that policy. Like, fantastic, we have all the rules in place, but there are zero hearts changed. There are zero people who actually find hope Um and redemption in the living God, what have we won? Right. Just like a bunch of pieces of paper that are signed that say that's the Christian side. Like, I I just don't understand what the win is at that point. Right. Sorry. I don't know what your question was. I don't know if you had a question when you started talking. But... You're just going for it. Here we are. No, yeah. And I think there is just so much of our cable TV culture that has seeped into our theological ideas um, to where there is an in-group and an out-group and to even suggest that the out-group or any person in the out-group is worthy of any kind of compassion or being listened to or being partnered with in, in any kind of a way is anathema and I think that that has seeped into the the church in really um, unfortunate ways that are to our detriment. Mm, and it pulls it it loses the dignity and value of humanity because then we think we're just it's your idea versus my idea, but you actually have hearts that are involved oftentimes, right? Like. How many times have you thought through and come to a conclusion of something and somebody tells you you're wrong and that has no bearing on your heart? Right. Like that has no bearing on who you are as a person. Like, okay, fine. That was just an idea, whatever. Like it's it's disconnected from me. That often doesn't happen. Like maybe unless you're a robot. Um, but I, it, I know this is going to be like a really silly example, but it's just the one that's on the forefront of my mind. So we talked about it earlier. We, we just had our third son, Elias, who's, you know, just a little potato, like a little blob. Like he does potato with googly eyes. (laughs) With googly eyes. Yeah. Who just, you know, eats, sleeps, poops, pees, cries. Like that's just what he does. Someone said, how's the baby? And I said, well, he's basically useless at this point. I was like, well, that's, I mean, that's not kind, but, but I mean, he is, but (laughs) the, the purpose of humans is not to be useful. Right. So I didn't mean it in a derogatory fashion. (laughs) But that's not, that's, that's not the example I was trying to say. So we have this little baby and we have our two toddlers, a two and a three-year-old. So they're very excited about Elias, their little brother. Um, but they have now uh, come to this idea that he's like a toy that they can play with. Like they just move his arms and move his legs and like poke him and do all these things. And I'm now sitting here saying like, no, you don't just get to control him. 
Like you don't just get to tell him what he's going to do and move his arms and move his legs because he can't. He is a human. And that's like the phrase that I keep using. Like he's a human. We need to be kind to him. You don't just get to like control him. He's a human. And I want them to understand like just because there's someone that um, is smaller than them, that's not as like... (laughs) cognitively aware as they are that doesn't have like the same maturity that they have it doesn't mean that they get to just like manhandle this this other human like they need to have respect and dignity and value for them and I think oftentimes uh, we're doing the same thing with our political views is we think well I have the superior view. I have the more mature thought. I have the more um, like just developed perspective. And therefore, I'm just going to devalue and like um, manhandle the other side with my words and being abusive um, to the point that you're taking away dignity and value that that God gave. Like you you don't get to take that away from somebody. And uh, we we just have to be really careful in the way that we step into these conversations that are just so much more heated now than I think they ever were before. And that's just where we're at. So we need to learn how to step into them and engage them. But to remember that people have dignity and value and we're not just a bunch of walking um just a box of ideas with legs. Yeah, that yeah. don't actually bear weight on someone's humanity and soul. Yeah, I think that is a good moral political vision for the world. This is a human. We have to be kind. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> works for a 1-year-old, works for one of the largest countries in the world. So we're talking a lot about ideas here, but really at the end of the day, um yeah, we're we're mourning a little bit that the church uh, has lost an important figure in Tim Keller. There was so much good that he did uh, for the church and for the world. And I absolutely agree that, you know, um, my sons will probably read Tim Keller and I'll ask them to read Tim Keller. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But like certainly that the next generation will continue to benefit from the things that he's written and the things that he started, uh, his church, his church uh, planning network, uh, other publications that he was uh, involved in. Um so, and I think what's more than that is that by all accounts, I never met Tim Keller, but from all accounts and every account of him that I've heard, he was a very humble, gentle, kind man of faith and integrity. And so I think that is just as important as some of the ideas and the thoughts and the philosophy and the theology and the church planning strategy that he uh, left behind, that he, he also left behind that he um, was practicing what he preached to uh, the best extent that somebody who's a fallen human can do. And so he provided an example in that way. So to close, I wanted to read uh, some words from, it was actually Keller's final address. It was recorded a couple weeks prior, but it was actually um, just by happenstance, it was released on actually the day of his death a couple weeks ago. And it was this video message uh, that he gave to the network of churches that, that came out of Redeemer Church. It's five uh, independent congregations now. He had recorded this video message for the pastors and the leaders that were there. Um, and I just thought there were some words that just kind of, you know, really summed up uh, everything that he tried to do uh, with his life. And he said this, Forget about your reputation. Don't worry about your credentials. 
Ministers, don't make your ministry success your identity so that that if things don't go well, you just feel like an utter failure or you just freak out. Uh, Don't make getting a big name in New York City your main thing. Lift up Jesus' name. Hallowed be thy name. Forget yourself. Forget your reputation. Do what you can to lift up God's name. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seekest them not. And I just felt like those were some really Tim Kellery, Tim Keller words that uh, I want to leave everybody with. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The content we feed our minds will eventually show up in our lives. If we feed our minds the lies and confusion of this world, our lives will begin to reflect worldliness. But if we feed our minds the truth of the gospel, our lives will start to reflect the heart and character of Jesus. I'm John Stonge, and each week I host the Dwell on These Things podcast, where we take a deep look at the Word of God and learn what it means to apply it to our lives. We don't skip difficult passages, and we don't gloss over the truth. If you're looking for a show that will put your mind in a better place and help you understand God's Word with more clarity, you can listen to the Dwell on These Things podcast at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.